The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So maybe I'll get started, and just a big welcome, and nice to be back after our break for, boy, it must be about six weeks since the spring Buddhist studies course ended, and as you probably know, hopefully we'll be studying the uh, map of the five spiritual faculties, and <clears throat> when they're developed, they're con- they're, the title changes, and they're the controlling faculties, or the five spiritual powers. It's kind of an interesting, you know, it, for us it can be a little bit triggering of, like, unhelpful effort. But it's really an important point that I want to, I'll bring out later after our sitting time about just our own experience of mastery and competence and where our mind gets so comfortable, so well trained, that there's a kind of power. Like we can really trust that a wholesome habit that we've taken the time to cultivate whether it's with a musical instrument or whatever it might be. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this just because it's good for my own practice. And uh, it's just nice that a community of people, we can gather like this eight Mondays and reflect on these teachings. There's something uplifting to be contemplating what can be done with a human mind. That something can, I mean, <laughs> you know, the truth is we, our minds already have superpowers, right? Like our amazing capacity to obsess for hours and hours. <laughs> or I was, I don't know if anybody caught this, who's on uh, maybe National Public Radio News around dopamine. And uh, <clears throat> I mean, I think it was mostly focused on children and the effect of staring at a screen. But the point is true for all of us humans, whether we have a young mind or an older, or a young brain or an older brain. But uh, evidently, even when something is unpleasant, like looking for something interesting to look at on the internet, you know, and scrolling, 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 there's, there's this dopamine hit that makes what we're doing, even though subjectively it's unpleasant, but there's this... Um, substance that makes it feel so relevant, so important, almost life-threatening to give it up. And the scientist that was being interviewed gave the example of, you know, walking into the bedroom of her eight or nine-year-old daughter, I forget, and saying, hey, it's such and such a time, give me that screen, you're going to bed. And, And the child, which, you know, some of you who've raised kids, recently know this, you know, it, it does seem to them to be life-threatening to not have that thing that their biochemistry is saying, don't let this go. This is really important. And you might have your own poignant moment of putting your phone down and deciding to shut the light off and go to bed. You know, it's like, is it really okay to shut it off, to not check one more time? How many times today did we check this or that? 
So we should know already how the mind can get trained and how these patterns become quite dominant, controlling factors in our mind, but not the wholesome ones, <laughs> the unwholesome ones. And, and we want to respect, like, because ignorance, those patterns, they have their own coherence, right? Those patterns seem like me, I, me, and mine, right? They don't seem like, I mean, sometimes when we have a little more clarity, those unhelpful, unwholesome patterns seem like, you know, an unnecessary appendage. And we're looking for a good surgeon. Like, how can we get rid of this? But a lot of the times, that tendency, the reason it has so much staying power, that it is a controlling factor, is because it has the appearance of me. That's me that wants to, that me that feels dependent, that me that's hopeful that I'll see something that, you know, I need to see, or whatever it might be. And I just bring that up because to inspire some confidence that one way or another, our mind is going to get trained. And in a way, training our mind to be ignorant and caught up with greed and aversion, in a way, is just as much work as training our mind to be wise and kind. But initially, it's going to seem like a lot more work because our mind is already well-trained one way. <clears throat> so now we're undoing, we're kind of going against the stream of that conditioning, right? because we've had this false sense, like, again, like what happens when we're raising children or <clears throat> having a dog or a cat. There's just this sense of yielding to the mind, the habit, the existing habits of the mind or the existing habits of our cat or dog. And then all of a sudden that pattern gets deeply entrenched. And then if we decide, you know, I, I'm going to put my foot down and I'm not going to let the cat scratch the couch or go in and out 10 times in 15 minutes, you know, it's like either going to be in or it's going to be out, but none of this, you know, I'm not going to let that cat dominate me like that. That's not okay. But, of course, it takes real persistence and real spiritual or psychological intelligence to change the dominating forces of our mind. Totally trainable, our minds. But we have to respect <clears throat> the depth of the grooves, tendencies that are already well established in the mind. And that's one of the reasons we gather like this, you know, we commit to eight weeks and uh, for Buddhist studies, you know, it's, I mean, you may have a business or work obligation, you may have a family obligation that doesn't make sense to get out of. But the idea is if you sign up for the Buddhist studies class and you can be here online or in person on Monday night, then you come, you know, unless there's a compelling reason not to be here, you come. That's the commitment, and it really supports all of us. And because we're rewiring, reconditioning our heart and mind, we need that community support. And then part of the commitment is to be practicing, right? And I think we have a somewhat artificial criteria or prerequisite that you've done 
some Buddhist retreat practice, including that would be even half-day retreats or three-month retreats, but that whether that's true for you, but some way you're feeling in your heart that you're all in. And it's showing up as having a daily sitting practice or an almost daily sitting practice. I'm not saying how long that daily sitting practice is. Obviously, it'd be nice if we're 45 minutes or 30 minutes or two hours, but that you really value the training, going on retreat and sitting, and then for the Buddhist studies, doing at least a little study. And then there's uh, another thing that we commit to, which is every other week, we will have small groups. And whether you're online in Zoom, or whether you're here in the room, I'll divide you up into groups of three or four. We'll have about 15 minutes, maybe a little bit more. Each person can check in. It's always okay to pass, but it's not okay to leave before the small groups. And again, it's okay when you're in the small group. You know what? I don't feel like I don't have anything to share tonight. I don't want to share tonight. But, but just stay open because after the other people in the small group share, you might want to share a little bit about what you've been learning, what's been challenging, what's been really useful in your practice, in your study. And that's also an act of generosity to the whole group. And it's part of what makes the Buddhist studies. You know, in the early years, I think we started around 2000 or 1999, and it's about a six-year curriculum now. We're just moving through these different maps that the Buddha used to teach. And uh, obviously, it's totally okay to keep repeating. I mean, I'm repeating it, <laughs> the study, you know, each time. This is, we've gone through it, the curriculum, four times now since the late 90s. And uh, <clears throat> the idea is that, you know, we're just applying ourselves, we're getting the pointing out instructions from a wise person, the Buddha and the other teachers that have commented on these teachings from their own practice insights. And now we're sort of using them to learn and then being part of that sharing so that like, because what you say in reporting about your own practice might be really useful. And collectively hearing different people over the course of the eight weeks, you know, the four small groups we'll have can be really powerful. So even to the degree that if something challenging or beautiful or insightful arises, you might even make a note so that at the next small group, you might share that. Or when there's large group question time, discussion time, you might bring it up for the large group. And to see that not just you tooting your horn or you getting in a question answered, but just being part of this collective movement where we're sharing our experience together and benefiting from that. Because our minds, although we all have our unique lived experiences, and for some of us, they're quite different. But on the deeper level, our minds are much more similar than we might think. And, uh, you know, whether we're reinforcing cycles of suffering and ignorance and obsessiveness, or we're finding and feeding and strengthening the 
process of awakening, they both begin with a more honest and clear connection with the truth of dukkha, stress, and the uneasiness of our hearts. It's, I find that really inspiring. Um, and next week we'll talk even more about faith and confidence, that movement in our heart that is inspired, which just feeds the willingness to apply our mind to the task at hand, to connect with the way it is. And um, one of the things that's so inspiring is just to, like in hearing, reading, studying, looking at my own experience, my own mind, hearing other people talk about their mind, just always framing and, and hearing all of that in this framework of conditionality. This is uh, one of the great little teachings from one of my teachers, Saida Utejaniya, is that wisdom, this is just a paraphrase, wisdom is always interested in causes. That's, what, that's how we know it's wisdom. Wisdom wants to read the lawfulness, like how things come to be, how this ignorance, how this reactivity, how this negativity has come to be. Instead of just immediately blaming myself for being bad, because I have this, these bad qualities dominating my mind right now, wisdom isn't going to waste its time judging. It's just as curious, like, oh, there are these qualities. They arose lawfully. What were the supporting causes that supported the arising and are maintaining these qualities, unhelpful qualities like greediness that are dominating my mind right now. So that when those supports aren't there, then the greed's not there. So what is the misunderstanding, the misperceiving? What is it that's not being seen, not being felt, that's here and now? And the same thing with the wholesome qualities. And that's a lot of what we're Realizing, like, if we're going to overcome the force of habit, the less than skillful habits of our mind, and develop the confidence and build the momentum for these wholesome qualities of mind until they really begin to dominate the mind, well, then we're going to be studying cause and effect, right? That's what we have to do. So what we do at the beginning of all of our classes is we'll chant the three refuges, and we do it in a slightly slower manner than is traditional, and it just gives us a time to sing together, to chant together, and it's, it's really good for the group energy just to do tasks together, right? It just, and if you're not familiar with the three refuges, we're going to chant in the Pali language, and it's just Buddhist code for our practice. So Buddha, or here it's Buddhang, that just means that we're taking refuge in being awake, being open, just connecting. Right? And what are we connecting with? Well, that's the second refuge, Dhammang, or Dhamma, Dharma, means the way it is. So Buddha is being awake, open, connected, clear with the way it is, Dhamma. 
So we see those as refuges. And we're like, in terms of cutting new grooves in the mind, we want being awake to the way it is, not theoretically, abstractly, philosophically the way it is, but immediately, directly the way it is right now, experientially the way it is, as our number one priority. We can still be a parent, we can still be do whatever we do in life, but being intimate with the way it is, being open, being connected, that's the number one priority. And then it allows for Sangha, which is the third refuge, which is this way of responsivity that comes out of that intimacy. It's not something we can plan, like an appropriate response is the response that arises when the heart is clear and open and connected and vulnerable with the way it is. And then, and only then, really, are we capable of what we would call an appropriate response, a nimble, creative, useful response, because it's coming out of the presence, that broad and deep presence, wide and deep presence. So let's chant this together. Appreciate the singing together. And, uh, of course, all of you online will keep you muted. But hopefully you'll be able to hear the group here in the room.
time now, feeling at home in our body as much as we can. Trying to fix anything, just sensing this activity of the body, this activity of the mind, checking the attitude, qualities of the mind now. And as we're just here, paying attention, being aware, sensing the quality of the heart and mind, sensing how it affects the mind, how we're paying attention, the quality of the mind that's knowing For example, if there's judging, critical, or even hateful attitude, well, that that has implications. It sets something in motion. Or if we're desperate to get somewhere, to fix something, that sets something in motion too. And on the other hand, if there's a sense of patience versus impatience, sense of curiosity, humility and curiosity, instead of arrogant certainty, it really matters how we're showing up the way the mind is knowing and relating. Just to the lived experience, this body and mind, the activity of the body and the mind here and now. So even if we don't have a clue, even if we haven't done any study, haven't heard any Dharma talks, it would be possible simply through this clear, steady observation to learn what is a skillful way to be showing up, being aware, 
what's an unskillful way to be showing up and being aware. We're basically learning how to plant seeds that are onward leading to what we ourselves find sense as being wholesome and healing and stabilizing. And of course, to refrain from planting seeds relating in ways that amplify reactivity and agitation and superficiality and reactivity. So it's as if we have only one instruction this evening as we sit for about 20 minutes. Through our own trial and error, how do we set what is good in motion? And how can we refrain from feeding, setting emotion what is not good, unwholesome, unhelpful? And this is something we are told from our teachers that we can directly sense. It's not theoretical. So when you notice that the mind in moments is distracted and really wants to indulge in planning or whatever, then instead of trying to control or stop, just sense what's getting fed, what tendency, what kind of mind is getting fed, strengthened. Is that the kind of mind I'm interested in feeding and strengthening? And be willing to experiment. Like how might I actually cultivate what is truly good and healing and felt as being healing and good directly, immediately for me right now? A couple weeks ago in the Sunday morning talk, I just suggested a simple thing to explore this teaching, only just connect. And then just to see directly in our experience if this is wholesome, onward leading to deeper healing and releasing and trustworthy mind. Just persisting with this intention to just connect, to open and allow and to connect with the way it is.
And remembering we don't need a different moment for exploring whether this attitude and intention to just connect, only just connect, if we can directly sense its wholesomeness. And in sensing its wholesomeness, the heart will be inspired, there will be confidence that this is good, and the heart will be willing to persist. And as we stabilize more of that willingness to connect, to be present, then wisdom will become clearer, deeper. There'll be more confidence about how to only just connect, how that works, how that can be supported. And it's so wonderful when we realize that we can always start again. We can't actually ruin it or break it. Or however distracted or caught up the mind becomes, in one moment of realizing that the mind has been distracted, it's possible to begin again. Only just connect, open. Oh, it's like this. Feels like this. And we're sensing the value, the subtle but very real value in the only just connect. This valuing of being open. Buddha being intimate with the way it is, with Dhamma.
We don't have to interpret our experience or define it. We don't have to narrate what we think is happening to ourselves. Only just connect. We're relying on the effort of being curious or interested in the way it is, in that direct or immediate sense. This experience is being known. Practice this not forgetting. You can sense this only just connect as uh, supports, feeds, strengthens this spiritual love, this willingness to include everything, nothing left out. And it's not about our ideas of the world or our ideas of our life. It's really about our experience, the immediacy of our experiencing. Everything belongs, nothing has to be left out. And you might even sense a kind of real spiritual power, this spiritual, yes, it's like this, this belongs. Can this be okay? Yes, yes, this could be okay. To feel what's here to feel, 
Be open to all that's moving. not need the moment to be different. And you might even notice if you remember these five faculties, you might notice that they're active in your mind. There is some confidence in relating in this way with awareness. And the mind, the heart is willing to persist, to keep it in mind, to not forget. This deep valuing of being aware, recognizing the present moment, this is being known, being open, Sensing the real stability, the unwavering of presence. And how the moment reveals its secrets because of that stability of awareness. There's a deepening of intuitive understanding. Ah, this is how it is. So for these last few minutes, just sensing the potential, at least, of real momentum, real power with these wholesome factors coming into balance, the stability and power of this simple presence, openness. However faint, when we sense the potential 
power, healing power, liberating power, even just a faint sense of what is possible. This mind, this heart, this path, and this life, when we sense what's possible, then the heart begins to let go of all these thoughts of needing a different life, a different set of circumstances. And we become much more interested in doing our best to feed what's worthy to be fed, cultivating the qualities that are worthy of being cultivated, abandoning qualities of the heart and mind that aren't worthy of being fed, that aren't onward leading to anything of value. Why would I feed those? Just the force of habit. So when you feel ready, letting the eyes open if they've been closed, taking a moment to adjust your posture if you'd like, stretching a little. So I want to introduce this topic now, the five faculties. Some of you know this list. As you know, the different maps the Buddha used in teaching, they're just overlapping maps. They're not like mapping different terrain. They're all, all of these teachings from the Buddha. They're just mapping out the nature of our heart or of our mind, right? And so... This is a particular way, and it's, it's really, uh, as I mentioned, we're understanding like what faculties, what qualities, aspects of the mind, when they're recognized, when they're fed, when they're brought into balance, become a kind of unstoppable force for awakening, for all that's good. And remember, the way the Buddha points out our predicament, the mind is a natural process like everything else. So we can't just make our mind the way we want it. I mean, because we probably wouldn't make the mind the way it is <laughs> if we could do that, you know. But it can be shaped. There's a way to shape the heart or the mind. And we do that by what we pay attention to, what we recognize, and how we relate to what we're recognizing, what we're knowing. That has, that's on a subtle level, there's intentionality behind what I notice and how I relate to what I notice. And it leaves an impression. So if I'm noticing the greed that's in my mind, and if I'm relating to that greed as if it's me who wants something and will be happy if I get it, well, that creates some karma. That leaves an impression. Every time I take my desires personally, that groove gets cut deeper and deeper. So then the next day or the next moment when a desire arises, the tendency to personalize that desire will be stronger. That's why it's almost impossible for us not to take desire personally, because we've been practicing doing that for a long time. 
So a desire, when it arises, when it gets triggered, whatever it's about, it just feels so real. I mean, there's a felt sense. I had a moment of sexual attraction uh, recently. I was just kind of on a really blunt kind of level. But it was just interesting. I was, I was semi-aware, you know, just noticing the effect on the body and the mind. And it's all it is, like we think, we wrongly interpret, oh, I'm a sexual being, you know, I can't help that. I mean, it, it sounds sort of right, you know, how can I appease this part of who I am? But what we fail to miss is that pattern has been developed, has been fed. And we don't really know what it's like to be a sexual being when we haven't spent six decades feeding tendencies, shaping them in a particular way. And it's the same when, you know, with everything, food or shopping or entertainments or you know, anything that shiny object that gets dangled in front of us, whatever it might be, wanting to become somebody, wanting to be seen in a particular way. So all the time we're developing faculties, <laughs> just a question of what qualities of mind we're feeding and what qualities of mind are not getting fed. And are these, we're, and what we want to do is just illuminate the whole thing so wisdom can participate. Wisdom, remember, wisdom is that part of the mind that understands from past experience cause and effect. So then what wisdom illuminates is, oh, you're watering, you're feeding this. So that means this is getting set in motion. How's that working for you? Is that what you want? Is that really the future you want to set in motion? Is that for your well-being, for others' well-being, for the well-being of both? Right? And wisdom knows it. Wisdom has that intuition, can sense or comprehend. That's the very definition of wisdom. It comprehends cause and effect. It senses it because of whatever feeble or clear observation there has been in the past. There's been learning. Oh, there's some sense. When this, when the mind relates in this way, this gets out of motion. And this brings out about a kind of vigilance. Some of you know chapter two in the Dhammapada, this really wonderful collection of the Buddhist verses and quotes from the Buddha put to verse. And uh, the second chapter is titled Vigilance. The Pali word, some of you know, apamata, vigilance, and uh, I like wholeheartedness, right? But vigilance is a good word because a vigil means you keep the light on, right? So it's like, don't go back to sleep. Don't go back to distractedness, to just being on autopilot. Stay awake. It's relevant to stay awake. And the passage goes like this. Vigilance, this is a Gil Franzdahl's translation. Vigilance is the path to the deathless. Negligence is the path to death. 
The vigilant do not die. The negligent are as if already dead, right? Like on autopilot. Knowing this distinction, vigilant sages rejoice in vigilance, delighting in the field of the noble ones, absorbed in meditation, persevering, always steadfast, the wise touch Nibbana. Nibbana, like one way to just to think of that is the heart, mind, this heart, mind, empty of grasping, empty of selfing. And what would be useful when we say that to ourselves, oh yeah, this heart of mind, empty of grasping, is it to imagine we know what that is, but to be curious, like, and, and with some humility, like, what would that be? A heart not dependent on experience, not grasping, needing the moment to be any particular way, not dependent on favorable circumstances or afraid of unfavorable circumstances. Doesn't mean we can't tell the difference, but not dependent, right? So it's like, I don't really know that reality. I know dependence, (laughs) wanting things to be this way and not wanting to be that way. I know that, so it's not that. So that's Nibbana. The wise touch Nibbana, the ultimate rest from toil Unwise, foolish people give themselves over to negligence. Negligence here means either like thinking, oh, it doesn't matter, or I'll do it later. Because this is the thing, you know, I know it can sound a little conducive to stress, but we, we want to gradually cultivate this moral sense, for lack of a better way of saying it, that it always is mattering how I'm relating. Like I'm watering, I'm feeding some pattern, cutting some groove in my mind. And it's either, there's, and it's not like there's middle territory. We're either cutting grooves that are stressful and lead to more stress, or we're supporting the deepening of grooves, tendencies that are wholesome leading to healing and wholesome states and leading onward to liberation. It's one or the other. And that's why, you know, when we hear these kind of statements that, you know, seem to imply, like this last line here, the wise protect vigilance as the greatest treasure. I mean, it's not that common <laughs> for your, you know, you, it's not that often we'd say to our friend, you know, what's up with you when they ask, what's up with you? Well, I've been guarding vigilance as my greatest treasure, <laughs> you know, don't go back to sleep. <laughs> you know, we, we'd be really an outcast, that, that sort of, you know, I could go do this with you or do that with you, but I'm going to choose to be in conditions and places that help me support my vigilance. And when I do have to be in more wild scenes, you know, and go shopping (laughs) or whatever we have to do in life, go to work, go to a family gathering or something like that, well, 
I'm going to do my best to bring my vigilance with me. And I'm not going to get tight about it because the tightness doesn't support vigilance either. Right? We just do our best and let that be good enough because that's actually what's functional, skillful, not obsessing about how I'm not vigilant. That doesn't, that's not onward bleeding. That, what groove is that cutting? You know, I'm so bad at this. You see that a lot in, in kind of Buddhist circles, you know, like, because it's hard what we're trying to do because of our conditioning. And so it can almost seem skillful to, you know, just like complain about our minds. Instead of complaining about each other, we complain about our minds and our conditioning as if that's a skillful thing to do. What would be more useful is to talk about how we're making a slight dent in our habit to be aversive or fearful or our habit to be greedy. You know, like, like how our mind with persistence yields and begins to transform. Because the mind isn't a thing. It's an unfolding process. I always use the example just because it's, it's kind of graphic. You know, but when you think of, if you've ever seen either video or actual, like up in Duluth, you know, those big ships, they're just huge. Some of those ships carrying the iron ore or whatever else they carry, grain, some of them. And the big container ships or the aircraft carriers or whatever you might imagine, those huge things cruising along. But if, if, if someone were to apply whatever force they could muster at a right angle to that boat, over time, it's going to affect the trajectory of that boat. Right? It may take a long time to turn that boat around. But, it, but that force can't be denied. So it doesn't matter how much, how deep the groove is to be anxious or to be fearful or to be you know, seduced by desire, the promise of desire. Oh, if only, then I'd be happy, right? But we want to really apply this, this persistent force. And generally, you know, we'll have five gateways, five aspects of the mind that we'll be looking at. Faith, confidence, persistence or effort, the not forgetting, the remembering to be interested, awareness, recognizing that this is being known, and stabilizing the continuity of awareness, the samadhi, the stability of awareness, and then insight or the deepening of wisdom. And that's the comprehending of cause and effect, how it works, basically. The nature of the mind, like how the mind comes to be the way it is, how the mind can be transformed. Because it isn't a fixed edifice, our minds. And this is meant to be, uh, to overcome helplessness, to feel that things are possible, the mind can be transformed. Sayadaw Tejani has said, the only thing we can do is to accumulate what is good is to practice now. Everything else is adding to the causes of suffering. 
And you might remember that uh, simile from the Buddha. You know, he has three similes, the hen, the simile of the hen, which is all about like, if the hen incubates the eggs, then they're going to hatch. If the hen doesn't incubate the eggs, the eggs aren't going to hatch. It doesn't matter. Like the, if the hen really doesn't care if the eggs hatch or not, but it does sit on the eggs, then those eggs are going to hatch. If the hen really wants the eggs to hatch, but neglect, neglect, ne neglects sitting on the eggs, then they're not going to hatch. So that's the first simile when the Buddha was helping us get a sense of how the path works. And the next simile is the axe handle. If you look at the axe handle, you're using it every day, and every day you check on the handle to see if it's worn down, you're really not going to be able to tell day by day that something's happening. But you will know, after maybe a couple decades of regular use, that handle on the axe is totally worn out. It will be so obvious. And that's another simile the Buddha uses, like, yeah, there is something happening, but it's gradual. But over time, there will be no doubt in your mind something is happening. Like this mind is not the way the mind used to be. This is a different mind. There is more space in this mind. There's less reactivity in this mind. There's more immunity to, from getting triggered than there used to be. And it doesn't matter if, you know, all of our friends say, no, no, I think you're worse off. We'll know for ourselves, like, I know this axe handle is worn down. This is not like it used to be. This is a different kind of group. And then the last simile in this talk from the Buddha is rotting sails, and like the riggings and sails on a boat sitting in the weather over time, that the practice is about wearing something down. And that's the idea of this, the power, like these spiritual faculties, when they get some momentum, they become these controlling factors. They dominate the mind. And it's like, you know, when you get a top that's really spinning fast, you can knock it around, but it kind of writes itself over and over again. And when we get these factors, because they're, they're reinforcing each other, effort reinforces the other factors, faith reinforces the other factors, the clarity of wisdom supports these other factors, the stability of awareness and awareness itself support the other factors. And they have this kind of dominance in the heart and the mind. And somebody can get knocked around, they can have a series of really difficult things happen to them. They get sick or people mistreat them. But the mind has a way of coming back into balance, not going into one of these unhelpful, unskillful vortexes of shame or this or that. doesn't mean that the mind is completely immune from those negative grooves, habits, but that the mind now has a tendency to for balance to reassert, this wholesome balance to reassert itself. And I'm sure there are people online right now in the Zoom community, in this room, that can attest to this. And this could be something to bring up next week when we have small groups.
and I'll be talking next week about faith, but to uh, give examples of, you know, these three similes, you know, how you've noticed that when you sit on the eggs, the eggs hatch. When you practice in the way that actually is in alignment with cause and effect, then that lawfulness of cause and effect plays itself out. When you plant acorns, some of those acorn seeds are going to turn into oak trees. And some of those oak trees are going to grow up, and some of those mature oak trees are going to produce a lot of acorns. And some of, right? Something gets set in motion. And to really, to talk about faith in that way with each other is very conducive for more faith all around, right? These are how we strengthen the factor, the faculty of faith. It's not just seeing it in ourselves, but hearing it spoken about in others. Oh, my mind, the negativity of my mind and the positivity of my mind and the freedom in my mind, it's all in play. It's not set. I'm not destined to be a fool or to be a sufferer or to be negative. It's just a question of what factors are being strengthened and what factors are being weakened. And when we hear that, we notice directly how the habit energies of helplessness are diminished. They just don't make sense when we hear our own reporting and the reporting of others, how things have changed. Right? That's what's so useful in group discussions, you know, when we get these testimonials, how our experience has really shifted over time. Another thing that might be useful, just in, in your homework, in your study, and your reflection at home, is to uh, almost, you could even write it down, but like at least like do a mental inventory. Like think through right from your early years as a child where you applied yourself, your mind, to a task. And you learned to play the piano, you learned to skateboard, you learn to cut paper dolls or whatever it was. You learned a sport. You learned a subject in school. You learned another language. And just that application of the mind and the feeling of mastery and competence. And just what's that like? And just uh, how that overcomes the sense of Oh, this is too much. Oh, this is too hard. Oh, I'll get to this later. But because it really matters what we pay attention to. And if you know how it is, it's like I look at my out in my backyard because when my partner and I, we haven't done that much work in our yard. We, we've done a lot in the inside over the years to renovate our home, make it really comfortable, but not so much on the outside and in the yard around the building. And, uh, and it's like, I can, in my mind, when I think about all the possibilities, I can get inspired. But then I look, and it just seems, oh, it's too much. You know, 
the forces that are in play. And I, and I do this sort of like, you know, I actually look at how many years I'm likely to be alive. And, and it's not even like how much energy it takes to set it in motion, but then how much energy it takes to maintain whatever we set in motion, right? And it's just like, well, just let it be. And I'm not saying that's the wrong calculus, but what we want to see is just that more honest, right? So we, we need a countervailing force of helplessness that where the mind goes, no, this is definitely doable. It's just a matter of just planting the next seed and then planting the next seed and then planting the next, just doing the next thing that sets something in motion, a particular thing in motion, and to keep doing that. And that leads to change. And then it's just a question of what do we want to, what seeds, like what's at the top of the priority list? And to see that like uh, really feeling that inspiration, that aspiration for transformation a lot of the times we wrongly presume it means we're going to get tight about it or neurotic about it. But we don't have to get tight just because we feel, we feel inspired. right? Because this is what wisdom does. There's the inspiration, but wisdom goes, it takes the energy of faith and it goes, okay, what, what can be done what seed, what action can be done that sets something in motion? What is worthy of action, of persistence? And, you know, we, we sort of know it in words, right? Only just connect, right? to open, to be aware. And how do we support that? How do we make that the, the number one value? And through the course of the eight weeks, it might be good, you might emphasize one of the five faculties, but it would be good to play with all five, like that sense of how do I, how do I bring faith to mind, the force of faith, an active force in the mind, in the heart. How do I bring it to mind, remember it, keep it in mind, in a way that builds the positive for, force of confidence and faith. So we, we can access that force of inspiration, which allows us to persist at what is worthy to persist at, which, you know, we're basically persisting at non-distraction, which allows us to be aware. Oh, it's like this now, this is being known which allows us to stabilize present moment awareness. So there's a real continuity, which allows wisdom to see the way it is, to see what it hasn't seen before about cause and effect, about the conditional nature of everything, which inspires the mind, more faith, that this human predicament, existential predicament is workable. It's not a setup, right? That's a we. That's so convenient, you know. I go there. I'm sure a lot of us do in moments. 
it's so convenient, isn't it, to want to give up? Because <laughs> it, it really lets us do not what we want to do, but what the force of habit has, wants to do. Turn the TV on or, you know, see what's in the fridge or distract ourselves in some way. Just sort of fill the space up in our lives with something that's relatively entertaining, you know, so we just get swept along. Now there's, there's something that we want to learn to intuit, and that's, it often gets translated as onward leading. So it's a sense like that, that something good is getting set in motion. And this is a relatively subtle thing. We feel it first more clearly with that wholesome concern like not something good is getting set in motion, but something bad is getting set in motion, right? That kind of creepy like, ooh, I'm not so sure about this. You know, the mind is doing something. Like I, that moment of sexual attraction that I mentioned, you know, I, the aftertaste of that was just, you know, how for me at least, and I'm, I'm sure that each of us has her own way, but it's almost like uh, taking something that wasn't freely offered, like when we look at something and the way we look, you know, that kind of hunger or greed or um, lust. And, uh, you know, and then it's like, there is that moral sensitivity because I don't think this is wholesome. I don't think this is helpful, right? It's there and it's just a question of momentum, like is the force of habit to act on this attraction, lust, stronger than that moral sensitivity that's going, I don't think that's helpful. I don't think that's wholesome. And you know, you just translate that to any interesting dynamic in your own life, where there's that play between habit energy and that moral sense. But we don't want it just for when we're involved, when the mind might be involved in something unwholesome, we want the opposite, like that onward leadingness. Oh, this is wholesome. This is good. Like I felt it a little during our guided sit tonight, you know, and I, I said some things near the end of that, uh, some of the instructions about just sensing that potentiality of power, like when the mind is in balance, and I was sensing that, it's like, yeah, I really had that intuitive sense, oh yeah, when these qualities are balanced, and there was some balance in my mind, some momentum, it's like, that is a real force of good. And then the thought that arose in that moment was like, why would you want anything else? Why would the mind be attracted to anything else? Well, there's only one answer to that. It's just the force of habit. Because the unskillful things, we're not drawn to them because they lead anywhere good. We're drawn to them because the mind's superficial and it's under the influence of the force of habit. That's why people do self-destructive things, people like us, right? We do self-destructive things because that's the habit and the mind is unaware in those moments of a counterforce, like, oh, this is outward leading. This is 
This is what the heart really wants. This is what's really good. One of the articles in the email today is uh, from Sarah Dowring. Um, she was one of the teachers at IMS. She's passed away now. And uh, she was one of the teachers at one of the three-month retreats I did in the late 90s. And uh, during that retreat, she gave a talk on the five faculties, and then she turned it into an article, which I've uh, linked all of you with. Um, and in that, uh, she writes, Tonight I want to speak about the five qualities of heart and mind, which are known as the five spiritual powers. They've been called the priceless jewels because they are, uh, when they are well-developed, the mind resets, I'm sorry, the mind resists domination by the dark forces of greed and hate and delusion. When the mind is no longer bound by those energies, then understanding and love have no limits. These five powers are also called the controlling faculties. When they're strong and balanced, they control the mind and generate the power which leads to liberation. The five are faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. When I first heard the list, I was puzzled. I come from a Christian background. Faith seemed, of course, exactly right to be there. Wisdom, too, belonged on the list. But the others, effort, mindfulness, and concentration, sounded very clinical and psychological and dry. Where I wondered, where I wondered was love. I did not in any way understand then that the cultivation of these five factors leads directly to love. They're all necessary. They all work together and interweave very closely. Faith, which here means trust and confidence in the Dharma and the way it is, inspires an outpouring of energy. When energy is strong, then the effort to be alert and pay attention is easy. Mindfulness prospers and becomes more and more continuous. The stronger the continuity of mindfulness, the more focused and steady the mind. Concentration grows. As concentration deepens in the stillness of an attentive mind, wisdom emerges. It is the wisdom of emptiness whose only expression is love. And the Buddha writes, just in terms of the feeding or the developing of these five faculties, practitioners, there are these five faculties. Which five? The faculty of conviction or faith, the faculty of persistence, effort, the faculty of mindfulness or awareness, the faculty of concentration or stability of awareness, and the faculty of discernment or wisdom. Now, where is the faculty of faith, conviction to be seen? And then he answers his own question, the Buddha. He says, in the four factors of stream entry, which means the association with good people, like appreciating how, how important it is to be around people. And it's really... It's not just about being around certain people, but about recognizing the good in people, as opposed to obsessing about what's off in people. Because when we, you know, when we see something good in somebody, we're activating that good quality in our own mind. You can't notice somebody's, 
calm and really appreciate the calm without immediately, directly appreciating calm. Your own understanding, your own experience of calm. You can't see something beautiful out there that you're not understanding is beautiful in here, in, the, in, in that moment itself. Does that make sense? So, because it's not, because otherwise we just obsess, like, well, who should I be around? Like, who's really worthy of being around? That's endless. So we'll spend our whole life thinking about who we should be around, as opposed to whoever we are around, seeing the good in them, really recognizing the good in them. Even if they don't see it themselves, we can see it. And then that strengthens the good in us by recognizing it in others. That's just one of the factors of faith. The other is listening to wise teachings, the Buddhist teachings, wise attention, you know, paying attention to the present moment, practicing in accordance to the wise teachings. And where is the faculty of persistence or effort to be seen in the four right exertions? Abandoning and preventing unwholesome qualities from dominating our mind, developing and maintaining the wholesome qualities. These are the four exertions. And where is the faculty of mindfulness to be seen? In the four frames of reference with the four establishments of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling, the feeling tone, mindfulness of the mind, the quality of the mind, the expansiveness of the mind or the narrowness of the mind, and mindfulness of the hindrances and the factors of waking, awakening the wholesome and unwholesome qualities of mind. And where is the faculty of, of concentration to be seen in the four jhanas, the four absorptions? And where is the faculty of discernment to be seen, wisdom, in the four noble truths? There is suffering, there's a cause for it, and that cause is abandoned, there is release, and there's a path for this release. And the point of this sutta is just that it's lawful, right? And we can count on that lawfulness. So I want to end with this passage from my teacher, and I'll put this in uh, the next email that I sent to you. It's just a short passage from Saito Tejaniya. He really is into the five faculties. He uses this map quite a bit in his teaching. If you don't know him, he's a wonderful Burmese Buddhist monk um, who's uh, taught here in the West, hasn't been coming recently. He writes or spoke, that which is able to practice is samadhi, right? That stability, concentration. That's that factor in the mind, that faculty of the mind that is able to practice. That which is, that which is practicing is virya, or effort, persistence. That which happens is sati, or awareness. That which knows how to practice skillfully is panya, wisdom. And that which wants to practice is sadha, or faith, confidence, right? So that which is able to practice is samadhi. It's that stability that can practice, that connects. That which is practicing is virya. You know, a good way to understand effort is interest, making the effort to be interested. That which is that which happens is awareness, 
right? That's kind of the act, active thing. It's the mind is remembering, oh, this is being known. It's connecting. It's remembering. That which knows how to practice skillfully is panya, because it knows it's read cause and effect, and it knows the skillful way to practice and what's not helpful. That which wants to practice is saha, right? That movement of the heart, oh yeah, this is good. I'm all in. I'm going to apply myself. So just to review the homework for this week, sensing in your own life that onward leading energy of faith, of confidence, like wanting to apply myself in a way that sets wholesomeness in motion, sets liberation in motion, that reduces harm for myself and others. Where have you seen that? And then even like I mentioned earlier about competency, mastery, and your own confidence that if you persist, you can get competent at what you want to be competent at. Do you want to be competent at happiness and freedom and release? We probably do, but we don't think it's possible that life has demonstrated to us, or in our own life and in observing others, that when people apply themselves, there can be change. Gradual, of course, not always easy because of the force of habit, but things can change. We, there's a lot of evidence. And then related to that opposite, though, is like reflecting about places you feel stuck, where there's a lot of <coughs> negligence, a lot of complacency, a lot of doubt, and you're kind of, the mind you notice is invested in that doubt, in that complacency, in that sense of helplessness. Like, there's a certain certainty about the doubt. <laughs> yeah, of course I, I have doubt. Of course I feel helpless here. I am helpless. That's why I feel that way. You know, and, and it's like the mind is resistant to opening and seeing that that's just one possibility. It's like a, there's a, like I mentioned earlier, there's a real coherence to these unhelpful, ignorant patterns. Like there's an intelligence that is there to maintain it. So don't be surprised when it feels well protected. Be curious about it. So yeah, I'll leave it here. Just take a moment, let go of the words. Appreciate the working ground of our own heart right here, right now. Not fixed in any way. So wishing everyone a good week of practice. Thanks for coming tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.